to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. I am so happy to be here this week. I was off last week, and I have a couple things I want to clear up right off the top. Okay. Two weeks ago, Alex, when you were out, Haley and I had an offbeat segment about these um, connect the dots art things for the Supreme Court to uh, put together that was sent by an art collective. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of running down a bunch of lists of this one was sent to this judge specifically or justice specifically and this one to their clerk and blah, blah, blah. And as I'm bumbling around, I think I name dropped Scalia in that segment. Oh, well, that is incorrect. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I didn't even notice. Yeah, I didn't notice. That's probably more concerning than Uh you accidentally saying that. My brain just is fried. I think so many justices. He looms large in the jurisprudence. So maybe that's it. But just wanted to say like, yeah, I heard it, listeners. I I heard it on the (laughs) listen back and apologies. It's not like you said he wrote back or something. No, I didn't. Someone could send him something. I I mean, (laughs) if you want, it's not going to get there. No longer. (laughs) I mean, us. send it with a psychic or a medium of some sort. Yeah, I, apologies for, for doing that. I think I was probably thinking about Alito and, and, and out Scalia's name came out of my mouth. The other thing I wanted to comment on was last week, you guys talked a little bit of Oscar stuff and brought up the movie Elvis and how they really omitted the legal drama. Yeah. And I just wanted to say I agreed with you, Alex. Didn't love that movie and loved it even less when that was the outcome. That's what I'm saying. I, and, it, and that happens a lot. We, were, that's, we talked about last week. To some people, that's like the least interesting part. And uh, that's, just not, that's just not the way we approach this stuff. No. So that's a, I'll, I'll just re-up that note to Hollywood. Very much the most interesting part. Um, yeah. So now that I've flogged myself for saying something wrong, we've now said Hollywood's done something wrong. What are we getting <laughs> right in this show? What, what's coming up later on? Well, you won't be surprised to learn that this week we are all about Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, I had the distinct pleasure of talking to our senior banking reporter, John Hill. He has been on the show many times before, and he is covering this front to back, uh, as well as the rest of the team here. But John and I went over kind of the high points of what you need to know about how the bank got in this position, whether there's like a bank contagion and what we can look for next is, uh, as the government has now stepped in and tried to kind of get everybody you know, back under control with Silicon Valley Bank and all that fallout. Talk, of course, the legal litigation angle. So definitely stick around for that. John really knows his stuff. Yeah, I love when he comes on the show. He makes this banking stuff that is so confusing to me sometimes seem really easy to follow. So looking forward to hearing that. Certainly. Well, I'd like to turn now to one of my favorite subject areas, which, of course, is employment news. And I want to talk about something out of California. There's a voter-approved ballot measure in that state called Prop 22. People probably recognize that name. It's the one that allows gig companies to classify drivers as independent contractors instead of employees. So this week, a divided appellate panel ruled that that should remain state law. And it's a big victory for companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, sort of that type. A lower court had ruled that Prop 22 was constitutionally problematic, but a divided appellate court said the California Constitution does grant lawmaking authority over workers' compensation to both the legislature and voters, and that's why it's okay. I gotta say, as a Californian, heard about Prop 22 for however long before that election. Years later, we're still talking about it. I shouldn't be surprised, but 
Yeah, but you shouldn't. It's a big deal. And yeah. uh, the proposition, you know, you're, you're right. The timeline's long. It was passed in November of 2020 with about 58% of the vote. And as I said, it allows the likes of Uber and DoorDash and that kind of company to hire drivers to do things like ferry passengers or food deliveries, but to avoid paying them for things like health insurance and business expenses. It basically takes away the guarantee of minimum wage, overtime pay, unionization rights, all the things that come with being classified as an employee. You might remember that the ballot measure was actually designed to carve out those kinds of drivers and delivery workers from a three-part worker classification test set up by something called AB5, it's a California bill that was passed into law in 2019. That measure made it harder for most employers to classify workers as independent contractors. So when this was bubbling up in the legislature and it was, like we said, you know, it was, it was headed to the ballot box. There was always the specter of litigation that was going to come from this. It's such a, an ambitious policy. What were the legal arguments at play? Yeah, this is interesting because it's not really about whether Prop 22 is, in fact, good policy. Um, there's lots of debate about that. But the legal arguments here are over whether Prop 22 infringed on the legislature's authority to enforce workers' compensation laws. The appellate court said that the California Constitution doesn't give the legislature exclusive authority over those kinds of laws, but instead it gives it to both the legislature and also to voters. The majority also rejected claims that Prop 22 violated uh, a single subject rule, and that basically says that ballot initiatives must be limited to one single subject. They said this one passes muster, it's okay. The majority did agree with a little bit of what was challenged here. They said that Prop 22's provision addressing collective bargaining can't be put into an amendment and must pass by a seven-eighths vote in the legislature. So the panel severed that part of it from the ballot measure and upheld the rest of Prop 22. There was also a lengthy dissent here where one of the appellate judges just flat out disagreed and found that the lower court was right in, in that judge's opinion and that lawmakers are the power in California that should be um, deciding what to do with these workers' compensation type laws. What are people saying in the aftermath of this? That it's not over, basically. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> Haley, you're in for it for a little longer. So Max Kuttner on the Employment Authority team wrote a feature about a bunch of reactions here. And attorneys pretty universally predicted that the fight over this is likely to continue to the California High Court. Overall, um, you know, this is viewed probably the way our listeners would expect it to be. The workers' advocates and unions are frustrated by the ruling. Uh, the California Labor Federation characterized it as the court standing with powerful corporations over working people. But of course, the gig companies and, and the business community more broadly paint a very different picture. They say it's a victory for app-based workers and that millions of California residents voted for Prop 22 so it upholds their vote. Again, attorneys are predicting all this could wind up at the state high court. It's a hugely impactful issue. It's drawn tons of attention. And court watchers agree this one's likely to also catch the interest of that court for a final resolution. Yeah, this is a really big one. I mean, I'm playing the uh, the weary Californian uh, <laughs> part here, but I am. Look, I Haley, am laboratories I mean, of, laboratories of democracy. You're gonna have to hold on to see how exactly. this really pans out. That is the plight. Of democracy. Come on, that's the <laughs> plight it. of Californians. That it often is. things move pretty fast out there, and the rest of the nation watches. I think that's true here. That other states have been seeing this saga play out and our kind of bated breath about where we finally land with this. Yeah, it'll be, it's a, it's a good one to 
to keep our eyes on for sure. Um, Let's turn now to a big abortion case out of Texas that's making headlines this week. This is, of course, the case challenging the FDA's more than 20 years old approvals for commonly used abortion drugs. And there was a key hearing this week on whether that suit was brought too late. That was essentially the big question there. Now, this is a really interesting case for a few different reasons. For one, this drug was approved so long ago. Another point here, ironically, although this is a Texas case, the states that are really watching closely here and that are really going to feel the effects should this drug be banned, uh, or I should say, should this drug lose its FDA approval, are actually the ones with really strong abortion protections like California. And on top of all of that, we had some drama this week because the judge overseeing this case initially tried to keep the hearing info out of the docket and under wraps. So as of this recording on Thursday, we're still waiting on a ruling but there's plenty to unpack while we wait. So this case centers around an issue that was really at the top of mind last year when the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, these kind of abortion-adjacent issues. Tell us exactly what's going on here, the basics. Anti-abortion groups filed this back in November, and that was just months after the Supreme Court handed down its Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. The groups are challenging a drug called mifepristone, and that was approved 23 years ago in the year 2000, so before before 9-11, pre-9-11 here. The FDA has long deemed this drug to be safe and effective, and millions of women have used it over the past two decades. But the groups say that it's actually dangerous, and the agency never should have approved it. Right now, the big thing we're waiting on is the court's ruling on the group's request for a preliminary injunction that would block the nationwide sale of the drug. And that kind of brings us to this week's hearing. I'm really interested in how you set this up at the top of your segment about how there was sort of some scheduling drama and some things on the docket that were unusual. Walk us through that. Yeah, I would say this this aspect maybe even kind of overshadowed the merits of the case for a little bit here. So the judge overseeing this case, his name is Matthew Kazmarek. He's a Trump appointee. And he initially told the parties that he would delay docketing the notice of the hearing. Um, and then he asked them to not make the hearing schedule public before it appears on the docket. Now, you know, just as someone who spends a lot of time in case dockets, that is a kind of weird move, right? I mean, typically... Yeah the date and time of hearings just show up on the docket as soon as they are agreed upon. Um, Reportedly, he did this because of concerns over disruptive protests at the courthouse. I kind of get that on the one hand, but we are the legal media, so we don't love not knowing about important hearings. Yeah, exactly. A whole bunch of people, uh, media outlets and journalists in particular, were very upset about this. They filed an objection accusing the judge of violating the Constitution by keeping a hearing schedule secret. They said attempting to delay notice of the hearing, quote, undermines the important values served by public access to judicial proceedings and court records. And there's already plenty of security at the courthouse, they said. That security 
has proven pretty effective. So they're like, we get it. We understand. We want to be safe too, but we feel perfectly safe. And in the end, the judge did docket the hearing on Monday. So on Monday that showed up and everyone's like, oh, okay, there it is. It's Wednesday. Yeah, it's a good point. It's not like there's never been a protest at a Texas courthouse before. So um, (laughs) with all that kind of behind us, the hearing was, you know, pulled into the public eye. And now uh, let's talk about what we actually saw there. It was, yeah. So like I said earlier, the hearing really focused on that big question that's on everyone's minds. Can you bring a case in 2022 over an approval that was granted in the year 2000? Now, bear with me here because just briefly we're getting in the weeds, but the anti-abortion- We're talking about banking later, Haley, so you should be fine here. This is true. So the anti-abortion groups say the FDA denied a petition that was filed by two members of anti-abortion groups in the year 2016. So according to them, that means it took the agency 14 years to make a decision on that citizen petition. And it makes the issue now ripe for judicial review. But the government argued at this hearing that the groups had several years to remind it about that petition, but they intentionally waited until after the agency finally denied it so that they could then challenge the decision in court. This is a hilarious timeline about how government works and how these things make their way through (laughs) the system. (laughs) But let's actually turn to the merits now that we've sort of gotten that procedural stuff out of the way. You said this case could impact the ones that have more robust abortion protections. Can you explain why that is? Yeah. So before we get into that, it's important to note that more than half of abortions in the U.S. happen using these medications as opposed to um, a surgery. And early this year, the Biden administration finalized a new rule that allowed patients to receive the medications by mail, but it does require a prescription. So the obvious effects of an injunction like this would be people who live in states that have already made it difficult or impossible to get an abortion now also, you know, can't get these medications via mail. That's that's a very obvious one. But turning to states with abortion protections, a huge chunk of abortion providers there only provide these medication abortions. For instance, in California, more than half of our abortion providers only offer abortion services in this way, using this drug. So if the medication sales are halted, then more people are going to turn to surgical abortions. And that's going to put a strain on already strained clinics in these states because people are traveling across state borders to get abortions here. So, you know, all of that is something that you don't initially think about when you think about this sort of limit to the sales. But it's also important to think about, you know, time is of the essence here. So if clinics are overrun and you have a long waiting period to get in, you might not even be able to get an abortion at all. So that's, of course, if this judge, you know, grants this injunction and sales are paused or permanently blocked There are, of course, a lot of different ways this could go. We didn't have time to dive into all of the possibilities. So we're going to have to wait on that ruling and perhaps on the inevitable appeals that happen after the ruling. I'm sure it's a long road ahead. Stay tuned.
The swift implosion of Silicon Valley Bank has sent shockwaves across the economy as politicians, regulators, and SVB customers grapple with the largest bank collapse since the 2008 financial crisis. The government has now stepped in, hoping to restore order and snuff out the budding fears of another banking calamity. Here to talk us through SVB's failure and what it means for tech, finance, and the economy at large is Law360 senior banking reporter John Hill. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks very much for having me. I wish you were under better circumstances. Well, this is right up your alley, and this is great because we are not finance heads on the show, and that's why you're here. And, you know, it's been just a shade under a week since the bank went under. We've heard lots of talk of bank runs, illiquidity, insolvency, woke banks, uh, <laughs> you know, very, very spooky sounding stuff. And I think it's important to just let's start in plain terms. Tell us exactly how we got here with Silicon Valley Bank. So it's probably uh, helpful, I think, first to put the bank in some context. You know, this was, as its you know name might suggest, uh, a very important bank for players in the Silicon Valley area. You know, the the tech industry, uh, tech startups in particular, and the companies that invested in them. So venture capital firms, uh, private equity firms. And, you know, what that means as a result of that is that the tech industry's growth kind of helped fuel the bank's growth. So, you know, you get this period leading up to today where you have several years of booming growth in the tech industry. It becomes very flush with cash, particularly during the pandemic. And so you have a lot of money sloshing into the bank. So you, as a normal bank would, you put that money to work. And what uh, SVB did is they invested it in government securities, uh, mortgage bonds, you know, longer-term investments that they think are going to pay off for them. You know, that's what a bank is supposed to do. The problem, of course, is that inflation hits. And last year in particular, the Fed starts raising interest rates really fast, really high. And what that does is, you know, two things. First, it cools off the tech industry. So suddenly you have these companies that were doing well before that are maybe doing less well. They're drawing down on what's in the bank. And so you sort of have this tide of deposits that starts to flow out. At the same time, higher rates means the investments that the bank had made are actually lower in value. And so as SVB needs to kind of raise cash to pay back its depositors, it's going to need to start selling some of these securities. At the time, of course, when they're less in value, that means that the securities are going to raise less cash. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be you have to sell more of them. And then you also have to recognize that loss on your books. So in the end, what we have coming up to the past really couple of months here is this period where the bank is kind of liquidating its portfolio and suddenly having to start telling people that it did so. So people are realizing, actually, the bank is in you know, not very good condition. It's, it's at least a lot weaker than they thought. So then by last week, this really comes to a head where the bank is kind of starting to get into a death spiral and it's trying to reassure people that it's okay. Uh, it's trying to raise capital. It's, you know, hires an investment bank to try to help it do that. Uh, it's not really working out. And in the meantime, what you've got is this sort of whisper campaign starting in Silicon Valley among tech entrepreneurs and their investors telling them, you guys got to get out now. So there are you know, these people trading messages on Slack, you know, on Twitter. Yeah. They are, are rapidly trying to exit and head for the exits. And then you get a very classic situation, which is a bank run. You've ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? It's really the same thing. You've got a lot of these angry um, customers who want their money back they want out of there as fast as possible, but that, of course, traps the bank in this sort of untenable situation to where you get to Friday and the bank has to be taken over by regulators. And that's a good place uh, for us to pick it up again, because it has been a while since 
2008 when the government was taking over several banks, uh, but they, they, they've stepped in here. Remind us exactly what that process looks like. I know it involves the FDIC and creating sort of new entities that are meant to protect deposits. Uh, what do we need to know about that process? Yeah, so the FDIC here is really a key player. Have you ever seen that, that TV show from a few years ago, Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay? Yeah, of course. It's sort of like that. You know, when a bank gets in a really bad situation, they have to bring in the Gordon Ramsay, the FDIC, to say, <laughs> shut it down. It's got to be it's got to be taken over. Regulators show up on the doorstep. They they basically have to turn everything off and turn it back on again to make sure that the bank doesn't fail and then hurt a lot of basically innocent people in the process. So the FDIC does this kind of in, in a few ways. I think the kind of the m most typical way, or at least the ideal way that the FDIC wants to do is to minimize disruption and to minimize the cost of the cleanup. So what they like to have is a buyer, a, a healthy bank really, already kind of lined up in advance to come in, purchase the bank so that you know they, they close it down on a Friday afternoon. And then by Monday morning, they're ready to open it back up. And it's got a new owner and everything is back in business. And, and ideally, it, it is, it's a smooth transition for the customers. And no one loses any money, and, you know, or at least a very little amount of money. And it, it tries to be as you know, smooth as possible. The other way is it gets to be a little bit messier. And that's really when you have a bank that is in such bad condition that it fails so rapidly that regulators really don't have time to go finding buyers. Um, and in this case, what the FDIC does is it sets up a bridge bank entity, which is sort of like a, a temporary bank that they move all the deposits from the bad bank into. And they use this to pay back the depositors so they, they get their insurance claim. And then the FDIC starts to kind of sell off the carcass of the bad bank piece by piece. It's sort of a liquidation process. That's uh, costlier for the FDIC. It can be costlier for the bank's investors and their uninsured depositors, importantly, and their, you know, their creditors and so on. Um, but but that's really not the way the FDIC likes to work. And in this case, you kind of saw them take that latter route. I mean, this was happening all on Friday morning. Remember, might have remember I said before, they try to do this on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. And so <laughs> Friday morning means that you have a lot of these companies that were customers of the bank that are trying to make payroll that day. They might have bills to pay. Uh, you've got the market still open. And so in the process of coming in and taking over SVB, the FDIC sends this signal that the situation is pretty bad. And the, the particular structure they used to set up meant that they were only going to be um, moving over insured deposits. So the uninsured depositors in the bank were not going to get paid back. So they didn't have a buyer ready. And the uninsured depositors might take a loss. That's really all you need to start a panic in the banking industry. And yes. as we saw over the weekend, it got kind of hairy there. Yeah, and that brings us to the next question, which is probably top of everyone's mind, uh, whether you're a, a company or just a person with money, with some money in a bank. Is this going to set off some huge domino effect of bank failures? It's like I say, it's raising ghosts of 2008. I mean, is that something we have to worry about here? Well, you know, when SVB went down on Friday last week, I mean, that, that really was the core fear of a lot of bank investors. Uh, you saw banking stocks battered that day. And, and importantly, depositors, you know, bank customers not really at SVB in this case any longer, but, but at all the other banks that sort of looked like SVB. And importantly, SVB, you know, I, I mentioned the tech industry before, they're very concentrated in the tech industry, but they also had another kind of unusual factor about their business, which was uninsured depositors made up about 95% of their deposit base. Now, FDIC, as I mentioned before, they pay back insured depositors. And the limit on that is around $250,000 per you know, account, and it gets a little complicated, but basically 250K is 
the limit for coverage. Uninsured depositors are everything over that. So many companies, their bank accounts are not fully covered by FDIC insurance, which means they are exposed to a potential loss if their bank fails. So if you are in a, another bank customer in a different bank and you're watching what happened at SVB, you're thinking, is my bank about to go under? So you know, it creates this moment where suddenly people are realizing like, uh-oh, am I at one of these kind of regional mid-tier banks that has the same risk profile as SVB and could get caught short the same way? So that starts to put a lot of pressure on a very particular group of banks that have really high levels of uninsured deposits. And uh, they start to get deposits being pulled out of them too. Suddenly there's this fear there's going to be bank runs across the industry, which could then create a cascading crisis. Sunday, you get Signature Bank. This is another regional bank with a very high level of uninsured deposits. It's based in New York. Uh, It also gets shut down by regulators. And, you know, this is kind of like a a panic mode situation for the industry. But very importantly here, the regulators say the same time they take over Signature, we are covering all depositors at both SVB and Signature. So in a sense, they extend the boundaries of FDIC coverage, which is supposed to calm people down and make them feel like, okay, I don't need to rush and take all my money out of the bank because, you know, it'll be okay. And at the same time, the Fed rolls out a special facility to help banks, you know, with uh, meet these uh, deposit withdrawal demands. So, so they, they really try to step in very forcefully here and, and in a way that you really don't see them do. This is like an emergency situation. They had to use special procedures under the law to do this. And that just speaks to the gravity of the situation. But this really forceful intervention that happens kind of Sunday night helps to avert catastrophe because you don't see any more bank failures on Monday. Mm-hmm. You start to see, uh, you know, bank stocks are, are still not doing too well, but they have recovered somewhat. And, and you, do, you don't see these same kind of uh, mounting fear that was beginning to reverberate through the industry on Friday night and Saturday. So that they've kind of helped to, to limit this for now. At the same time, there's still concerns about, you know, where this is going to go from here. Uh, in Europe, you've seen like Credit Suisse has come under uh, a lot of pressure and it's got a very different business model. It doesn't have the same risk factors. There are different reasons for its pressure, but it creates this sort of moment where suddenly everyone wakes up and realizes, you know, banks aren't as safe as I might've thought they were. And I am actually possibly exposed here. So people are being a lot more careful. And it, it, we're not out of the woods yet, I guess is how I'd put it. Okay. You are appearing here on our legal news podcast, after all. So I'm going to cut right to the chase here. Uh, is anyone getting sued over this? Has, have there been suits filed? I'm sure we can expect some. Oh, you bet. And, and they got to it within days. I mean, you, you Signature Bank uh, was sued. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was sued. I mean, really, really it's the, the leadership of these companies. And it's, it's, it's a fairly standard type of investor claim, which is, you know, that there's some sort of uh, deception here. And in this case, the disclosures weren't uh, you know, really adequate to, to convey the level of risk that, uh, in this case, Silicon Valley Bank, the, the risk that it was carrying in its investment portfolio, you know, what it did with those deposits, they, they weren't uh, managing the bank properly. You know, that's a fairly standard type of investor claim. Uh, we'll probably see more cases filed like that in the coming days against those two banks and their, and their management. Um, and, and as of yet, we haven't had enough time to see kind of what I would call more interesting types of lawsuits that would be out there. And these might be things about, you know, disruptions to companies that were customers of these banks yeah. uh, that then weren't fully disclosed. The kinds of ripple effects that you you would expect to see after something that is is industry-shaking as this event was. Uh, but you've already seen the early stages of this litigation. I would also expect to see regulatory action, uh, importantly. And I don't just mean possible rules changes. I mean, you know, maybe enforcement actions. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of pressure uh, on the regulators in Washington to hold someone accountable, you know, make some people pay. And in fact, possibly literally, you had 
uh, a senator um, just the other day calling for executives to have some of their salary clawed back. You know, have to give back some of their pay because they mismanaged the bank. So there's likely to be uh, that kind of action as well against individuals. There have been investigations opened at the SEC and DOJ. So that is another area where we'll have to watch for kinds of ripple effects after this. You alluded to it there a little bit, but you wrote about the political fallout on Capitol Hill. The knives are out on both sides of the aisle, really. I know that there's a lot of talk about sort of changes that were made to Dodd-Frank laws, you know, some, some, some years ago, and that's heated up a huge fight. What is that looking like? I, I will try to keep this succinct because I know this starts to get into the weeds of, of banking regulation, which typically makes people's eyes glaze over. But, <laughs> but you know, the important thing was that coming out of Dodd-Frank, we all realized that big banks are risky and that they need to be regulated um, more strictly than they had been prior to that. So Dodd-Frank kind of set this, this line, uh, 50, million, excuse me, $50 billion, where that was considered anything above that systemically uh, risky and therefore needs to be subjected to kind of heightened regulation. Uh, this went along for a number of years, and there were concerns in the industry about you know, how uh, maybe overburdensome this was to certain banks in the kind of the lower end of that range. They shouldn't be regulated like the big heavy ones. So what happens in 2018 is you get some uh, changes to that through a, a law called uh, the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, S2155 is what everyone calls it, it raises this $50 billion threshold to $250 billion. Oh, wow. Silicon Valley Bank is around $200 billion by the time it's, it's ready to collapse. So it is kind of in this tier of banks that received some relief as a result of, of those changes. So there's a big debate playing out right now in Washington about was that law responsible? You know, did that contribute to the ability of the bank to take on additional risk and not face regulatory consequences for it. So that's that's kind of one big strand, and that's a very um, uh, potent argument on progressives, and they've really been, been pushing this in the past few days. Uh, you know, there are other questions about how on the ball were regulators here. Did they mess up? Did they, they overlook something? Uh, you know, was the supervision of these banks inadequate to uh, make sure the banks were taking care of the risks that were building up inside their portfolio? And there's also, of course, questions about bank management. Were they doing something sloppy? So you have sort of these competing theories being offered for exactly who is responsible. But what mm-hmm. is likely, most likely to happen is kind of a reevaluation of some of the standards that we have in place to ensure that banks remain liquid, which is, you know, to be able to pay back depositors uh, when they are requested to. And uh, you might have uh, potential changes around the edges there. Another idea would be to... Uh, tighten up the way that banks are actually supervised on the ground. So, so you, you would want them to be expected to take regulators' advice much more seriously than just treating it as a guidance, that they would uh, try to make that a little more forceful behind the scenes. And then kind of an, another idea being talked about now is possibly just extending deposit insurance, that this action that happened over the weekend really shows that if, if a bank is big enough and gets into trouble, it doesn't matter the 250K limit anymore, that, that mm-hmm. you can be over that and still protected. So that creates a question about will that lead to deposits going from smaller banks to bigger banks in hopes of taking advantage of that kind of implied guarantee. And that can create some other instabilities that could be possibly avoided by expanding deposit insurance coverage to a higher level or possibly just removing the cap entirely. Well, as I said before, we're not even a week into this crisis uh, as we record here. 
John, you're covering this from all angles. Uh, I want to know what you're going to be looking for in the next you know, days, weeks, months. Uh, what's what's going to be on your radar as we deal with this? I think the really huge question now is who comes in and buys Silicon Valley Bank? The FDIC has said that's what they want to do. They want to try to just pass this off to another bank. Of course, the, the concern there is that it would need to be an even bigger bank that would take it. So you get a, a big bank being swallowed up by an even bigger bank, which makes an even bigger bank. And that's something the Biden administration has been really concerned about and trying to actually, uh, you know, kind of reduce the incidence of. You know, they've been thinking a lot about merger review policies and how they might make those more stringent. So this really puts the Biden administration in an awkward position. And the purchase of the bank could really uh, factor into a lot of these debates around bank merger policy and the growth of the industry and kind of concerns around excessive concentration and consolidation. So that'll be a key thing to watch. John Hill, you have been crushing the beat the last few days. And I did I did just want to shout out the coverage from the rest of the Law 360 team. John is doing yeoman's work, but the entire team pitched in. This is uh, if, if this is an interesting story to you, I would definitely encourage you to log on to Law 360 and check out our suite of coverage on this. It's uh, It's been awesome. So thank you so much, John, for being on Pro Se once again. It was awesome. Thanks for having me. Light Dinner Show was something offbeat, and all I've been thinking about for the last, I don't know, couple of weeks or 10,000 years, hard to say, is Bravo and the latest Scandaval. Haley, are you ready yes. to talk about it with me? I'm clearing out here, by the way. Said this before we started recording the segment. My fine co-hosts have the floor. Go. <laughs> okay. It really took a lot of restraint not to force Alex to talk about Scandaval with me last <laughs> week while you were gone, Amber. So I know, I know. It's just top of mind. Okay, so for the people who are more in Alex's camp and are not heavy Bravo watchers, what the heck is Scandaval? It's a cute name for a scandal involving Bravo celebrity Tom Sandoval and two of his co-stars on the show Vanderpump Rules. So for the uninitiated, the brief description is that Tom Sandoval has long time on the show, had a girlfriend, Ariana. They have been living together. They've been they own a, a house like, together. Own a house together. An established couple on the show. I would venture to say a beloved couple. Yeah. Turns out one of the co-stars named Raquel, then we've also learned her real name's Rachel, so maybe I'll call her Rachel throughout. She had an affair with Tom Sandoval for months and months, and it just came out in the middle of them finishing up the current season so cameras started rolling again, and everybody's weighing in on Scandaval. So that's the backdrop of what I want to talk about today. But that's where that's where you lose me a little bit. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, not these people specifically, but like people in the, like these quasi-celebrity types, they're always cheating on each other and stuff. I mean, why? Oh, Alex. What, yeah. How did this spill into such a, in, into such a bitter legal dispute? Well, here's the thing. Um, yes, I want to get to the legal part. That's obviously why we're talking about it on Pro Se. But yeah. just to answer the base question, everyone, almost everyone on Vanderpump Rules has had an affair with almost everyone else. Sure, yeah. It is yeah. a staple of the show. Oh, yeah. They're beautiful <laughs> Young people, well, some of them are now my age, but when it started, <laughs> <laughs> so, I was going to say, they're, they're I mean, getting older, I would but... still consider them to be young, but uh, <laughs> I mean, like 20 is young. It's charitable to me. Um, anyway, the, I think the, this one really hit home because it was very unexpected. 
And Ariana in particular has never been involved in any kind of cheating scandal herself. So I think this one hits harder for that reason. She's she's pretty beloved, I would say, among the fan base. So here's the legal part. This week, our own Anna Sanders talked to an attorney who got some unexpected fame as part of the fallout of Scandaval. Here's what happened. One of the other Vanderpump Rules stars is Lala Kent. She is quite outspoken. So even for non-Bravo watchers, you might have a sense of who she is. She was married to a movie producer for a while. Um, were they married, Haley? She was involved. They have I, a child together. Yeah. I and, don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember either. But anyway, for purposes of this conversation, so Lala this week received a letter from an attorney representing her fellow castmate, Raquel. The letter requested that all of her castmates, she sent it to many of them, don't distribute a lewd recording of her with Sandoval. Lala, who was always quite fiery, took immediately to Instagram, started complaining about the law lawyer contacting her directly instead of having just sent it to her own lawyer. After a bit of a rant on the subject where she said never in her life had a lawyer contacted her at her personal email and sort of on and on, she suggested the lawyer send things to her own attorney. At the end of that rant, she exclaimed, send it to Daryl. <laughs> I enjoyed this video so much. And also, before we get more into the meme aspect, which is obviously just chef's kiss, this is the rant of someone who's dealt with a lot of maybe legal threats over the years. But everybody like, sends it to Daryl. They don't send it to Lala. That's her point. A, only someone who's very experienced in this area would be would be like, how dare you send this to my personal email address? It's just such a funny, <laughs> I mean, in any you, event. You also often hear people say like, send it to my lawyer. You just don't hear, send it to Daryl. That's just, yeah. it's so good yeah. and I love it. We're meant to infer that her lawyer's name is Daryl. Uh, I've, I've put that together. What do we need to know about Daryl? Okay, so Daryl is a Fox Roth child partner. His name is oh, Daryl Miller. He oh, actually, he works at like a real law firm. Oh, yes, he's legit. Okay. La has a lot of money. He <laughs> told Law360 that he was actually in a staff meeting last week when one of his attorneys came to him with the news that he'd become a meme. Uh, he <laughs> reacted with some confusion. I think maybe wasn't even sure what a meme was, really. Daryl, Daryl. <laughs> I mean, look, he's a serious attorney. He doesn't have time for this nonsense. But he had a great sense of humor about it when he talked with Law360. He ultimately called it, quote, the most hilarious thing I've ever experienced. And no, this is never something that I've been a part of in all my 30 years of practice. So, Fantastic. I love that as a response. I like that he's taken it, like, pretty casual. The send it to Daryl line, of course, became a rallying cry for Bravo fans. I mean, I've sent my own versions of this meme around and talked to everyone I know about it. I'll probably be saying send it to Daryl for years. Haley, I mean, would you agree? This is perfect for us because it's legal oh. and Bravo. Yes, yes. So Lala, ever the smart cookie, she realized this was taken off and she's already put that catchphrase on some hoodies that she's selling for 50 bucks a pop. <laughs> See, the, 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 uh, the reason I exclaimed that he works at like a, a real big law firm like Fox Rothschild is because if he was just like a solo practitioner with his kind of like just kind of catch all like practice, I mean, you would definitely take out a billboard of yourself that says send it to Daryl. Like any legal problem you have, <laughs> send it to me. Like yes. that's. But, it's a, but, it's but got that's, a real Saul Goodman vibe to, a little to it, bit, doesn't it? Yeah. So, Better but that's not his Saul. position. Yeah. I mean, exactly. So, but that's not the position he's in. So, I mean, did he did he get a cut of the merch sales? I mean, it is it is his name after all. 
Uh, he was asked about that, and he said he does not expect to get a cut of those hoodie sales, and that, in fact, he supports his clients in their endeavors. But he also <laughs> did acknowledge what you said, Alex, that the clip is free advertising for his practice. Like, send it to Daryl. He also did confirm something that I had wondered about. The attorney who reached out to Lala, he never did send it to Daryl. And so when Daryl talked to Law360, he said this. I think that lawyer is terrified, but Daryl is sending something to that lawyer. Oh, Daryl. Oh, he, he went third person. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He went, he, went, he went full Ricky Henderson on him. I Look, love it. It's such a good line, guys, right? I mean, it's just such a nice little tidy story for us. Happy to know who Daryl is. Uh, feel like I might need a hoodie now. I'm not sure. I do want to give one more shout out in this Bravo section before Alex fully clocks out of this episode. Too late. And that's her great story that our listeners should check out where we have some coverage of a podcast called The Bravo Docket. Those are two attorneys who break down the legal drama that constantly plagues reality TV stars. Their show's pretty good and the interview with them tells the story of how at first they were sort of just talking about Bravo with their friends in the office and then slowly realized how ubiquitous it's become and how deeply legal the shows have turned out to be and how that just has exploded since then. So it's really a fun fun read. So legal. And I mean, before we even, before we stray from Scandaval too far, I do want to add, there is a hearing coming up that, I don't know, maybe interesting, may not, but Raquel has accused another Vanderpump star of punching her in the face <laughs> after she found out um, about the affair. And so Raquel has actually filed for a restraining order against this castmate. And there's a hearing coming up on March 23rd at the Van Nuys Courthouse. I, for one, am, am waiting eagerly for it. I say, um, do you have PTO in for that day? That's a Thursday. You know? <laughs> or have you record. just really petitioned that we have to cover it and you need to be the one to do it? <laughs> yeah. I, I did send the hearing information to one of our LA courts reporters. I Great. will okay. say that. Perfect. Perfect. I think yeah. I consider myself, you know, too close to mm-hmm. uh, the Vanderpump universe to, Can't to be cover objective. it in a in an ethical manner. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, very very intrigued because Amber, you've probably heard the reunion. They're supposed to be shooting the reunion soon for this season. And now that is kind of up in the air because of this restraining order. Yeah. There's a lot of scuttlebutt about whether or not one of them will have to be on Zoom because they can't be in the same place at the same time right now. So again, legal world folding in on this Bravo world. So these are perfect for me. I apologize, Alex. Haley and I are probably going to do this to you again in the future when there's new developments. I'm just happy when people talk about things that they're passionate about. And that is certainly what we have seen here today in the <laughs> section. So thank you both. Uh, and thank you, Alex, for, for being with us today and having that great interview. Thank you. And Haley, appreciate you talking Bravo with me, as always. Thank you. Thank you for your service. <laughs> I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, John Hill, and our contributing reporters, Jess Crockdangle, Lauren Berg, Max Kuttner, Emily Sawicki, and Anna Sanders. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a written review, five stars, that helps other people find our show. 
And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about and keep up with all this Bravo news, we got some coverage there too. Check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.